grace and peace, uh, and welcome to uh, another episode of Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast on teaching and learning about the scriptures in particular that we're preaching on on Sunday. And that's our hope and prayer that uh, through each of these podcasts, uh, it, it causes you to engage with Holy Scripture in, in new and exciting ways and to, to read Holy Scripture and allow it uh, to help lead your, your life. And so we are finishing up our sermon series and teaching series, Dysfunctional, where we're looking at dysfunctional relationships, um, particularly in Genesis. Uh, and today we we finish up this week uh, with the story of Joseph and his brothers, where we're looking at the dysfunction of their relationships and how we can learn from that and become more functional in our relationships. And so the story of Gen Joseph and his brothers uh, happens in Genesis right towards the end, and we'll be looking at Genesis 37 uh, today. Uh, and so we're excited uh, to have uh, the lectures from uh, Emory University's Candler School of Theology and the, the Foundry at Candler. And so we hope you'll enjoy this lecture and engage more fully with the scripture uh, that we'll be preaching on on Sunday. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining me in this final week of our study of some of the characters in Genesis and their dysfunctional relationships. Our last story uh, centers on the sons of Jacob, particularly Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story. This is the famous Joseph and his coat of many colors, although the Hebrew Bible uh, is a little bit fuzzy as to what the coat actually, what was it about this coat that made it so special? Was it that it was a long coat? That it was many colors? Was it well made? We're not sure, but it was special. Anyway, uh, I'm just going to recap for a second the, the real high points of the story. First, Joseph is one of Jacob's youngest sons. Um, he's only older than Benjamin, and both Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, whom he loved, the Bible tells us. And he's always in this position of being his father's favorite. And his older brothers, especially the brothers from his father's other wife, who was less loved, Leah, they don't like this, and so they don't like him. Joseph also has this tendency to tell his brothers and his family everything that he's thinking or dreaming and also doesn't understand that that does not ingratiate him to the rest of his family. As a result, one day his brothers uh, throw him in a well wanting to kill him and are talked out of it by one of the oldest brothers, Reuben, uh, who wants to try to do what's right and come back and set him free. But instead, they follow Judah's idea and they sell him as a slave. They tell his father that he was killed by some wild animal and they take his beautiful coat, his well-made long sleeve coat of many colors, what have you, and dip it in animal blood and show it to their father, making him believe that Joseph is actually dead when really he's been sold as a slave in Egypt. In Egypt, uh, Joseph goes through this continuous up and down. He's sold to a man named Potiphar, who's wealthy and powerful. And Joseph does very well until Potiphar's wife uh, desires Joseph. And when she can't have him, she tells some stories about him that get him thrown into jail. Even in jail, Joseph once again rises to the top 
and ends up eventually, as a result of his dreams and in ability to interpret dreams, uh, becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man and is put in charge of all of Egypt. Eventually, the famine in the world, the ancient world, grows so bad that the brothers uh, come from Canaan to Egypt in order to buy grain to go home and feed the rest of their families, uh, whereupon they don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. And there becomes this back and forth sort of cat and mouse, mistaken identity, uh, which ends up with Joseph finally uh, telling his brothers who he is and them understanding how this story, which started chapters and chapters ago, has now come full circle. So here's what I would like to offer to you, that the dysfunction that we see in this particular family narrative comes from a lack of recognition. Now, I want us to draw our attention to two aspects of the definition of recognition, to recognize. To recognize something on one hand means to correctly identify, to have the, the ability to see what something is and to correctly identify it as itself. But there's another way that we use this word recognize, and that means having the ability to properly signify something. So if I said, I didn't recognize someone because they got new glasses, that's, I wasn't able to correctly identify them. I couldn't see who or what they are. But if I said, unfortunately, we overlooked someone, we failed to recognize them and all of their contributions that they've made to our organization or our church. In that sense, to recognize someone means to properly signify them, to describe their importance, to acknowledge their contribution um, or their value. And what I think is happening in this story, um, and one of the reasons why this is such a wonderful aspect of storytelling in the Old Testament, is that the writer is really playing on this aspect of recognition because it's both. In many instances, a character isn't physically recognized. They can't correctly identify them. So it's not only that um, in the story where Joseph's brothers don't recognize him, he's dressed as an Egyptian, he's probably wearing all Egyptian garb and speaking Egyptian, and so they don't recognize him. But even before that, when his brothers dip his cloak in the animal blood and show it to his father, he isn't able to correctly identify, to recognize that's not actually Joseph's blood. Joseph actually isn't dead, but he is alive. And so there's this mistaken identity, but it's often also a way of hinting at or drawing our attention to how this family does not properly recognize what someone is and how to treat them according to their true nature. And I will argue that this even applies to Joseph himself. Now, remember when Joseph has these dreams, right? He has these particular two. One is that there's a uh, 12 shafts of wheat, and one is bigger than all the rest, and all the others bow down to it, right? And he says, I'm that shaft of wheat. I'm this big stack of wheat, and y'all will bow down to me. Of course, we can understand why his brothers don't like this. 
In another dream, he has a dream that there's 12 uh, stars and that 11 of them circle around him and he is the center star. And even the moon and sun, his mother and father are circling around him. Now this gets even his father upset and says, do you really think we're all going to bow down to you? What's interesting is that Joseph understands his destiny. He does recognize and correctly identify that there is something special about him, that he is destined for this place of prominence. But I would argue he doesn't have the ability to properly signify it, to properly assign it its place of importance. Because remember, why do Joseph's brothers actually encounter Joseph again? They go there in order to buy grain because they're starving. So Joseph knows he's important, but I don't think he yet understands or has the ability to properly understand why and how and what that will look like. Joseph's brothers also don't recognize Joseph's place in the family. When he brings up these dreams, they either dismiss them or grow angry at them because they don't recognize that this is the correct identification of Joseph that he will indeed have this place of prominence in his family's history. Now, what's interesting is that the writer of Genesis actually takes a break in the Joseph narrative and goes back to the brother Judah. This actually is an interesting story because Judah ends up having these sons and uh, one of them leaves, dies, leaving a widow childless. Judah promises that he will give one of his other sons to his son's widow, Tamar, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't recognize, properly signify her need. So what happens? Well, she takes matters into her her own hands, as it were, and she dresses in a veil as a prostitute and tricks Judah into sleeping with her and getting her pregnant so that she can have her child. Now, what's interesting is Judah doesn't recognize, he doesn't correctly identify this woman by the side of the road as his daughter-in-law, but he also didn't recognize her need. He did not give it the value that it deserved. And so we get this little uh, inner calorie snapshot of this problem of recognition, of properly understanding who someone else is, and why they are important. And this really can sum up for all of these brothers what their dysfunction is, their inability to see each other as they are and to ascribe that importance. Now, when Joseph's brothers come to Egypt, he recognizes them, but they do not recognize him because they assume that he's dead. Now, what's very interesting is they don't correctly identify Joseph, but they do ascribe his importance. They understand this man is powerful. This man holds our lives in his hands. Joseph, at one point, has one of his older brothers put in jail until the other brothers bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, to see him. Their ability to eat and travel and remain together as a family is completely in Joseph's power. And they understand this. So while they don't recognize Joseph for who he is as himself, 
they do recognize his importance. Now, the real climax of the story takes place when both aspects of recognition happen. And I would argue it's not just the climax of the story. This is when the relationship begins to become functional once more, when both aspects of recognition take place. On the one hand, the brothers understand that Pharaoh's second-hand man is their brother Joseph. They recognize who he is, and they recognize his importance. He is the hinge on which the entire family depends. Without his placement and without his cooperation, the entire family will be broken, scattered, and starving. Now, that's not the only change that happens. Joseph as soon as his, he reveals himself to his brothers and they apologize for what they did and they, they demonstrate their sorrow and grief for what it was that they did to their brother, Joseph says that he also recognizes that his place of primacy in the family, what he saw in those dreams of him being the tall shaft of wheat or the star around which all the other uh, heavenly bodies uh, orbited, was not merely his own importance, but rather his ability to serve his family. That was the piece of recognition that Joseph did not have. He knew at the beginning he could identify that he was going to be great and that the other people in the family would recognize that, but he didn't understand what its importance was, that he had been made great in order to be of service, in order to save his family. And Joseph says this to his brothers when he says, what you intended to hurt me, God intended for good, for me to be able to be in a place to turn around and save you. And so it's this moment of family togetherness, this moment of reconciliation takes place when all of the parties present properly recognize, they see, and they also acknowledge each other's importance and acknowledge their connectedness with one another. Joseph realizes that his importance was never uh, to the exclusion of his family, but rather on their behalf. God did not make him this great man in charge of everybody and everything in order to simply make him important and to not make the family important, but rather so that he could operate on their behalf. And the brothers also understand the same thing, that Joseph being elevated above them was God's provision for them and for their family. And once everyone was able to see each other as they are and able to appreciate each other for what they contribute, that's when the family truly reunites. Joseph invites his family, his brothers, his father to come and live with him in Egypt. Although we will see that like our story last week of Jacob and Esau, they also had a little distance from him. 
they lived in another uh, section where they could have all their flocks and they could have all of their families. And Joseph was still a little bit removed. They didn't need to be right on top of each other. And so in the same sense, it is always true that boundaries are a hallmark of a functional relationship, not of necessarily distance or a lack of love, but rather sometimes that's actually the best way to progress in a relationship that has been dysfunctional before, is with really clearly designated boundaries. And again, we'll see the exact same pattern of Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, all gather around his father as he dies and all bury him together and all make plans to bury him together. And so this story of our patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis comes to this close as the family once again finds grief as a place of reconciliation and togetherness. Once again, finds that it's when we truly look at each other and see each other that we can understand each other's value and importance and the special ways that God has connected us to each other in spite of our deficiencies and our dysfunctions. Also, please remember, once again, this is one example of a family in the Bible that we can look at and see what their relationships look like. And it is not the only way by all means to do anything, but it is one that we can learn from their progress and their journey We can learn from the things about them that are exemplary and the things about them that are cautionary. I hope you've enjoyed this study of Genesis just as much as I have. Uh, And I thank you for being here. And I encourage you, keep reading. Keep reading.